So if you have your Bibles uh, with you this evening, would you look with me at verse 6 of Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, as you see there on the slide. Verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And we are to be filled with the word of God in every part of our life. And it is to dictate and to orchestrate how we live our lives. Let's go uh, to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon this time, and then we'll commence our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your safety uh, and travels. Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity. I do thank you for the little bit cooler weather. And uh, Father, I ask for tonight as we look at your precious word. And Father, uh, we are in a world that's increasingly more antagonistic uh, as well as hostile to New Testament Christianity. And Father, this is no surprise to you. But Father, uh, just because culture is changing, Lord, I pray that you would help us in our lives uh, to continue to be steadfast, unmovable uh, upon your founded word. And Lord, I do pray that as we look at your word this evening, that I really do ask that you'd refresh spirits. Uh, Lord, lift up and encourage in a way that only you can give. Father, I love you. And Lord, I need you this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would help me as I deliver your words from your precious book. I love you and thank you for your wonderful grace. Draw us closer to thyself. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Some of the objectives uh, as we look at this uh, pattern of uh, being a word-filled teacher, and really, as we see here in teaching children uh, and others around your house, that the Word of God would permeate uh, how the house is orchestrated. Explain the, explain the four key functions of the Word uh, from 2 Timothy 3. Understand how to use the Word to help someone who is hurting and recognize the element of unbelief that underlies disobedience to God. And the way to apply these truths is respond by appreciating and loving the Word of our God. Number two, respond by setting aside regular time each week for an in-depth study of the Word of God for yourself. And number three, respond uh, by demonstrating a greater confidence that the Word of God has the answers to the problems uh, of living. And my wife and I, as we have had some uh, individuals that we have met with and done some counseling with, or discipleship, really counseling is discipleship, but done some discipleship with, uh, and uh, there's been a lot of confusion because of the integration of psychology, secular psychology, or uh, uh, professing Christian psychology that mixes uh, atheistic or secular psychology with uh, Christian ideas, and it creates a lot of uh, misunderstandings and a lot of uh, confusion. Uh, but the Word of God really does give us the guidance in moving forward. In the last few weeks that we've been looking at these lessons, uh, we've been looking on putting on a new man, what it means to be Christ-like, uh, and to make a difference in the lives of those around us. As I said, as we had mentioned before, right, if you want to change the flavor of a beverage, you've got to add something different than what is currently there in the beverage to change it. And, uh, or if you really want to also change it, you could just leave it out in the sun and let it rot or whatever, but that would also change it. But that's not what we're talking about, okay? But uh, Moses, 
you know, as he's here, Moses' desire in Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the servant leaders, that they become loving examples. And uh, in the verses that follow, the functions of the leaders uh, to whom Moses is addressing. He wants these leaders to be saturated in their hearts uh, with the ways and the word of the living God. It is, we can, in, week in and week out, we can hear preaching. I can listen to additional preaching. Uh, I like to listen to different preachers. It kind of gives me different ideas. And, and just, it continues to help fill my soul, because I need preaching as well as you do. And uh, so I, I'll listen to preachers. And, uh, and then, but if I get just these truths, and, and I don't apply them to my life, if I'm receiving knowledge uh, but I'm not living it out. It has really no practical application. It has no practical application in my life. So the apostle, uh, excuse me, Moses is giving instructions to saturate not only the minds of the leaders but their families. If they're going to continue to be a nation that is set forth to be an ambassador for God, then the children must have minds saturated with God's word. And Paul has a parallel emphasis on this here in the New Testament. And as we look at this, uh, in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, would you look with me here, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul really resembles the same remarks of Moses, who was given these uh, truths as from God. In verse uh, 16 of uh, Colossians 3, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So again, even in uh, the word of Christ is dwelling in you, but even in your songs, the, 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 it's giving honor to the Lord and giving praises to God. We are all teaching by how we live our lives, how I live, how I orchestrate, how I respond to uh, varying circumstances. It's all demonstrating, again, how much the word of God has penetrated my heart. So God's concern is not just that I'm teaching but he wants me to be a word-filled teacher. I can uh, expound some truths, but just if I'm giving out truth, but I'm not filled with God's word, it's not going to benefit me, it's not going to help me, and in essence, it won't help you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, look with me here. You do see it up there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In verse, you know, in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is warning Timothy, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that perilous times are come, they're, they're in last days, they're in the days, you know, in verse 1 of the chapter of 2 Timothy, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then he also lets him know, uh, you know, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. So Timothy had what Moses had given, Colossians 3.16, had been applied in Timothy's life. He had learned the scriptures. He had understood salvation from a young age because the word of God was prevalent in the home. But he also, in this passage of scripture, the apostle Paul in verse 7, we'll get to verse 16 and 17 here in just a moment, 
Uh, but in 6 and 7, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laid with sins led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he's, learned, he's warning them, you're going to see an increase in false teachers. Verse 13 of the same passage, of the same chapter, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So they're giving, and it was kind of interesting in this message that I had listened to, this individual wanted me to, that we are to fulfill our dreams. Well, I can have a dream, but it doesn't mean my dream is in a, a, a alignment with what God wants for me for my life. As I was, I was like thinking about some things, and there were some things that were very scripturally wrong with this. But Timothy needs to be, uh, stay steadfast and assured of the word of God, assured of truth. You know, and protect yourself from error. And so in order to uh, increase or bolster his confidence in God's word, God's word, he gives him verses 16 and 17, letting him know what this is all about. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, in these verses, as we see here, these two verses, principally these two verses, and in this passage of Scripture, there is a warning, get ready for dangerous days. The Bible teaches us what is right for us. Doctrine. It teaches what is wrong with us, right? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof. (laughs) Hey, there's something wrong going on in your life. It teaches us how to make it right in correction and also teaches us how to stay right. Instruction in righteousness. So God uses these, verse 16, that we could be thoroughly furnished, fully equipped to do what he's called us to do. And so it is using the scriptures in someone's life as you... uh, expound and you open up scriptures someone may be struggling and so you expound the scriptures in discipleship with them giving them understanding listen some of the things in your life are not uh, what you think they are let's get to the root cause and there's the heart problem Uh, psychology uh, we had this uh, discussion recently with an individual and uh, psychology starts you know with the premise you and i've spoken about this before but it starts with the premise, really, that you're born good. And society, environment, culture, and all of that, it mars you. But the Bible teaches us that we start with a corrupted heart. You know what? We're in a religious climate today that accepts, uh, you know, those who may say that doctrine is not important, is not as important as unity is. But if doctrine is not important, then what, was, then what is the whole purpose of Jesus in Christianity? Doctrine is absolutely important. Doctrine trumps unity. Now, I, I under, let me give a little bit of more information on that. How you deliver doctrine, how you live out the doctrine, that is also important because doctrine affects how I live my life. So you might have right knowledge but not live it out or be cantankerous or harsh or whatever, as some preachers may put forth, and therein 
uh, kind of, you know, uh, speaking of a different thing. And the doctrine does not match with their practice. But the doctrine is our sole test of faith. You know, some today pronounce that, you know, the sole test of faith is whether someone loves Jesus. But you've got to ask the question, which Jesus? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, look with me here. You know, it's amazing that God didn't leave us open to just some oral traditions of men. He's, he transcended, inspired men to ensure that the instructions he wanted were put into writing for the preservation through the century so that you and I could have him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, but what I do, that I, uh, that I will, oh, verse 13, excuse me, for such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So there's men that are deceivers. And then look with me back in the same chapter, verses 3 and 4. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled or deceived Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. There's another thing here in Galatians chapter 1. Is doctrine important? Absolutely it is important. Doctrine is the very foundation and the, uh, the moorings of our life. I mean, it's the bedrock of everything we are to live out in our Christian life. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Verse 6. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel, so there's an exclusivity, a singularity of truth unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be Accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. You know what he's saying? You know, you'd have the Jehovah's Witnesses that preach a false gospel, you'd have the Mormons that preach a false gospel, uh, and you would have many other uh, sects and, and, and uh, professing, uh, quote unquote, professing Christian organizations that will preach the gospel. I was even seeing something recently on the Church of Christ. They, they say that their lineage goes back to the time of Christ. But that's not true. That is absolutely not true. And they put their salvation in their baptism, in their maintaining. Ultimately, it's a, it's a good works maintenance. So the Bible teaches us what is right. And the Scriptures are inspired and this is where, you know what, God doesn't leave us to ourselves uh, to determine what is the right doctrine. Number one, he gave us 
the word of God, but we see here the scriptures are inspired. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4. God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So he gives us his word as, as the metric, but he also gives us another confirmation that what we may be hearing is not correct. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Have you ever been sitting somewhere and, and uh, listening, and, and you begin to listen, and, uh, and you hear a message, and then you're like, wait a second, something doesn't sound right about this. Something's a little off. Particularly if you begin to deal with you know, as we just read there about the gospel, if they change the gospel at all, then it's not biblical gospel. It might be a good news from a religious standpoint, but it's not the gospel unto salvation. It's not the gospel that converts and makes one a child of God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, beloved. So he's speaking to believers here. Now, 1 John is speaking, uh, is dealing with a tremendous amount of Gnosticism. First John is, and, and so he's trying to address a Gnosticism in that day. One of the tenets of Gnosticism is oftentimes that there is some uh, group of people, some intellectuals or professionals, that they have a corner on the market for understanding God. And those who are not as intellectual or as enlightened as them somehow are, uh, need to follow their instructions. But the Bible tells us in verse 1 of 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. I mean, just right there on that very premise, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are clearly heretical. Because they corrupt the very doctrine of who is Christ. You look at 2 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There's only one chapter, but 2 John, verses 9 through 11. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in a doctrine of Christ, no, it very clearly is singular, abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not in your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. There is, in Christianity, a, a smorgasbord of beliefs. The whole idea of denominationalism. Well, I don't quite believe that about the Bible, so I'm going to go here. I don't believe that, so I'm going to go here. I don't believe that, so I'm going to go here. But he's giving a singularity. There is the doctrine. It's not a hodgepodge of pick and choose what you want to make that feels right. And the legitimacy of a church is 
its doctrine. It's not a New Testament church if it is not New Testament doctrine. It can't be. Because they're bringing, potentially bringing a different gospel if, if they want to add to it or subtract from it. Now, we, we do understand some things that, uh, the, you know, the church of Corinth had some real problems. And so, uh, you know, and Paul was correcting the church in that. But doctrine to the Apostle John, to the Apostle Peter, uh, Apostle Paul, doctrine was absolutely foundational to these men. And it was the doctrine of being word-filled that enabled them to carry out the duties that God had commissioned them to. And so to survive the days with which those men were in and with which we are in, God has given us his scriptures that are inspired. And the Apostle Paul, in our passage of scripture in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he wants Timothy to understand that the word of God does not come from just some men. Now, if you remember, the Bible is a collection of 66 books over a period of roughly 15, 1600 years by some 40 plus authors. Or I would say penmen. Because the penmen are inspired by God to write the scriptures. But there is a cohesive thought from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation that unifies the Bible unlike any other text in the world past, present, or future. These penmen who are inspired by God are not putting forth their ideas. They're not parroting or repeating some philosophy of the day. Because many times their philosophy of the day would be in contradiction to uh, what was the cultural norm. These men were writing the words as the Spirit of God would move them. Look with me at 2 Peter 1.21. Verse 21 of 2 Peter chapter 1, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word moved, is, you can also think about it as born along. The prophecy is that men have, God has given them a revelation. And they're just writing down what God has given to them. Now, in regards to like the Mormons with Joseph Smith and the golden tablets that have not been found and cannot be substantiated and are quite in contrast with what the, the churches through the centuries have uh, universally agreed uh, upon the creed or the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible as canon. And that canon is the standard. Uh, that word canon means standard. The second thing we find is the scriptures are infallible. They're God-breathed. As they're God-breathed, they are not coming. Do you and I have errors? Yes. But because they're God-breathed, they take on the nature of the author. Who is the author? God is. It's not just some man's writings. 
God is omniscient, means he knows all things. Omniscience, he knows all things. So he's not ignorant. He didn't leave anything out that was not important. He gave us all everything that we need for life and godliness. He hasn't revealed anything that we didn't, you know, that we did, we do need to know. And he doesn't contradict himself. God doesn't make mistakes. This idea of infallible is that he is it, the scriptures are without error. Now there are those at times that might say there are some contradictions in the scriptures. Now, uh, in the modern translations, you look at several of the verses, and there are very clear contradictions. Uh, there are some very glaring contradictions. Uh, and even in the King James, which comes from the received text, which was the text, the Greek and the, the received text is the, Hebrew, the Greek text. You have the Hebrew Masoretic text, which we use for the Old Testament, which was translated from Hebrew into uh, English. But in those, the, the Masoretic and the received text, which was received by the churches through the centuries as God's word, there might be, you know, you say, I don't quite understand this. This doesn't make sense with this passage of Scripture. But when you understand the cultural context for the book, again, it brings an understanding, and again, there are no contradictions. And God is perfect, and he transmitted his word to us without error. The third thing that we find is the Scriptures are authoritative. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. says, whatever the Bible says is so. And it is. But there is in Christianity today and even in New Evangelicalism that what the Bible speaks to me about is true. And if it doesn't speak to me, then it's not true or it doesn't apply to me. And when we do that, And there were some things in the past. I, I had a communication one time with a, a gentleman when I was in Bible college. And he said, Chris, your problem is you don't understand a passage of Scripture. And if you don't accept, if you don't understand the passage, then you reject the truths that are presented. And in essence, I was setting myself up as an authority. But I can't do that. Just because I don't understand a passage of Scripture doesn't mean that what is said is not true. It's true whether I, agree, whether I agree with it or not. Gravity is true whether I believe in it or not. It's going to impact me. And we are in a culture today where there is an arrogance to come to God's word and whatever I choose to believe is so. This relativism or subjectivism, where uh, relativism is whatever I believe, but subjectivism is this idea, whatever culture or society or the group I'm running with believes is so, it is so. But in that context, the Bible is not then the final authority. The group, the culture, whatever, that entity that is defining particular truths is the authority and thereby the God. But if I'm going to rest my eternity 
then I better rest it upon the authority of the entirety of God's word because it tells me so. And, the, and, and it is true, and the Bible has proven itself over and over and over again in the authority, the, the truthfulness, and the accuracy of what it speaks about. The Bible is the exclusive source of how an individual can be redeemed from a lost state. No church, religious group, government, culture, well-intentioned individual can add to or subtract from God's word without usurping or undermining God's word. In Revelation chapter, the last chapter of Revelation, it gives us a warning against that. That if you do that, you better be warned. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the scriptures very clearly tell us it is the exclusive source for our redemption and actions before God. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You might be saying, well, that's circular thinking, right? We say the Bible is a sole source, and it tells us it is a sole source. But at the end of the day, what is your worldview? As I dealt with on Sunday morning, foundations. You have to have something as the very fundamental, foundational truth for how you live your life. You are either the foundation, and you're the one that is the primary authority for your life, or something else is, or God is. So you have to determine in your mind what is that fundamental foundation and bedrock for my life. How I live everything my life, what is it founded upon? Because if it's founded upon my emotions and what I think and what I'm doing, well then, you've set some standard. But if I'm going to say I'm a Christian, then the only standard as the bedrock foundation for everything that builds up in my life ought to be exclusively God's Word. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, Neither is there salvation any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. The Bible is the sole authority for how a man is to live after his salvation. It is the final authority about sanctification. Sanctification is the process. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, as I spoke about on Sunday night in Second, uh, First Peter chapter 2, uh, you, you know, the desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, verse 2 of Second Peter, or First Peter uh, 2. So I desire that sanctification is that growth process. You know what? Many years ago when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, I didn't understand things that I understand today. And there's things that you didn't understand when you were first saved. But it doesn't mean I'm any less saved. It just means I've learned more about the Lord. I've learned more about uh, my heart and, and how susceptible I am to uh, going away from Him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, there's another discussion here about this, uh, about the Bible as our authority. 2 Peter 1, 3. It 
It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Again, God gave us everything we need for life and godliness. So there's, a, again, an echoing of the sentiments we saw in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It also says the Bible is our sole source. Someone might uh, protest, so why should I believe that the Bible is the final authority regarding the way I live when I don't believe in the final authority on topics like history, chemistry, space exploration, nutrition, welding, or accounting? The Bible does not claim that it knows everything about history. It doesn't claim that it knows everything about science. It doesn't claim that it knows everything about uh, chemistry or so on and so forth. But when it does speak about history, it is completely accurate in where it speaks about it. Archaeologists will tell you such and such a civilization did not exist you give it some time, and then they later on have to recant their statement that what the Bible said was true, this civilization actually existed, because they'll end up finding the artifacts. So sometimes these statements are like, well, the Bible's not true here. It could very well be you just haven't found the information that's there. The Bible doesn't claim that it knows everything, that it, it, that it says everything about astronomy, but when it does speak about astronomy and the stars, it is absolutely accurate. And again, the Bible doesn't claim to say everything there is to know about how to live on earth. It doesn't tell us about how to, to do our CRA taxes. I mean, it just doesn't give us that. But it does cover all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So it gives us some principles and practices and virtues of how to live life. It gives us a solution when problems arise in our life on how to solve them where to find help and instruction. And many times as believers, not necessarily here, but in, in some places, we will rely on other competing sources for information uh, for living our lives, and, and therein we commit a great evil because uh, we're rejecting what God has given to us. If what a man has discovered on his own is truly helpful, it can already be found in God's Word. You know, when, you, when we attempt to help other people in their life, maybe they're going through some really hard times, traumatic, tragic, you name it, just some hard times. The Bible gives us some instructions, some principles of how to advance forward, of how to be a comfort. But if we don't know how to handle these situations, again, we come back to God's Word, we look at it, and we say, what does the Bible say? The Bible teaches us authority, authoritatively about what is right. I was just reading in Psalm 40 this morning about preaching on righteousness. And the righteousness is about what is pleasing in God's sight. You know what, our hearts in, in these days, as 2, Peter, as 2 Timothy 3 talks us, these days are more perilous. As we look at our government, as we look at mandates and, and edicts and creeds and you name it, and, and just society, I mean, even last month with the Pride Month, 
I mean, unbelievably trying to cram down an ideology that is so opposite of Christianity. It's satanic. And it's an abomination to God. And, And there are many people who have been hurt. There are a number of incidences of abuse of all sorts. Frequency of divorce and single-parent homes. uh, Emotional turmoil. uh, Educational problems, spiritual disasters, so on and so forth. And the questions we want to ask ourselves, is God silent about the pain and suffering that humans are going through? Do I need to go to some quote-unquote self-titled or academically titled psychologist to discover something about just sitting down and being able to listen and giving some guidance from God's Word? Do I need to go to drugs to alter the moods and agitation and loss of well-being? Now, there might be a, you know, someone coming off drugs or whatever might need some uh, chemical help, but you know, do I need to turn to Eastern religions and yoga and those sorts of things to help calm a troubled soul? Does someone need to go to even cannabis or the edibles or other things to calm their soul? Do we need to teach someone to look deep within? Follow your heart to find peace. The answer to all of these is no. The Bible will teach us correct doctrine. It will teach us what is right. God is the expert at addressing the pain in an individual's life. Most of the Bible was written to hurting people. I mean, the Old Testament Scriptures were written to and about hurting people. You have the Israelites who are in chains of slavery. I'm guessing they're they're hurting Joseph in prison, he was hurting. The Gospels also talk about the Jews living under a Gentile rule. Uh, You would have the woman with five husbands, and the one she's living with isn't, and uh, the woman caught in adultery. You'd have the woman with the issue of blood. You would have uh, the the paralytics and the lepers and others. There was a lot of people with some real troubled, blind The New Testament Gospels are a record of the Lord Jesus' ministry, words to the Jews living under an oppressive government. The epistles, which are letters written to smaller churches and congregations largely, and many of those in these churches may very well have been slaves with bad taskmasters. They're going through some hard times. I just want to think about some of the conditions that maybe some of the believers in the first century church were undergoing. Early in the century, let me read a little bit for you. In the first century, as the gospel began to make its impact in that capital city of Jerusalem, the believers were increasingly targeted for persecution because of their newfound faith in Christ. You have Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first seven deacons of the church in Jerusalem. He's stoned to death. Because he's merely talking about Jesus. Acts chapter 8. Saul's continued actions against the the church. The believers are scattered abroad, running for their lives. 
trying to find new homes and new careers and new jobs to provide for their families. Why are they running? Because of Jesus and their faith. They're rejected by their own countrymen and their own citizens. No matter where they go, they suffer greatly. Denied jobs, denied land, denied status as even a citizen. Families of these individuals may have ridiculed them, maligned them. They could have been jailed or killed. James and Peter, co-pastors of the church there in Jerusalem, they wanted to encourage the flock there in 1 and 2 Peter, press on, don't give it up. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. First Peter also lets us know this uh, about you know, those who are going through manifold temptations, a trial of your faith. First Peter 1, 3, and or 6 through 7, you can look at those. But God would use these times of great pain to begin to refine the vessel, refine the believer, to prepare them for a day when, they can, when the real fiery trial comes, they'll stand strong for the Lord. Is this the kind of advice that we would get in today's, you know, you go into a Christian bookstore and a lot of these, and even this message I listened to today was kind of nauseating, talking about dreams and follow your dreams and God he wants to give dreams, and He wants to multiply your dreams and it was just like, oh, there was no scripture to back any of this up. But the self-help books that you get it that you need to be all that God wants you to be but it doesn't deal with any sin. It doesn't deal with anything in a life of, listen, you can't have the joy and the peace of God. You can't have God's blessings on your life without the intimate walk with God, and you've got to deal with sin in your life. You don't hear in these self-help books, girding up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look for Jesus. God's recovery program is sanctification, being set apart for the Lord. So how do I deal with great pain in my life? How do you deal with great pain? Look with me at 1 Peter 1.14. It is in increasing our intake of the Word of God. As verse 14 <clears throat> As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of, of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then you would go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I looked at that on Sunday night, about desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So how do I overcome painful events, situations, tragic events, traumatic events? I've got to just get back into the word and increase it. You do that whether you're under affliction, persecution, temptations. And what he's giving, again, they're talking to scattered believers all over the place. And they're fearful. And they're fearing. and, and, And they're fretting. I can give no greater... If I give you what I think on things then I'm no different than someone across the street who has a different idea. 
But if I give you what God's Word says, you look at it and you say, well, that's clearly what God says. Then being Word-filled, giving counsel exclusively from God's Word. Did God forget to tell us how to deal with hard times? Here in North America, many times we've got the idea of, you know what, we've been able to solve the problems, you know, life will get back to comfortable, and life will get back to what we perceive it should be, and, you know, and we've lived in a very comfortable world with very little real persecution. Now, I understand there has been some. But I don't need other things to just supplement the Bible. Now, there are other men that might have, you know, additional helps with the Bible to you know, they look at the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says, and it gives you additional information, you know, and, and dealing with maybe some particular uh, uh, problems. But the Bible very clearly tells us, 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Many times in the, in the problems of our lives, we just simply don't know God's word. Or if we do know it, we don't simply follow it. We don't apply it. And God is calling us to be word-filled teachers. means uh, in advising anyone about problems of living, I come to God's word and I say what God's word says about it. Now I, I do understand there might be some chemical dependency with some drugs and, and there has to be some things to deal with that. But ultimately that dependency is again a heart problem. So you need to deal with the, the heart. God's inspired word will tell us what is right and begin to how to deal with those problem times of our life. 2 Peter 1.3, the Bible accurately contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I'll end there for this evening with this message. But just being a word-filled teacher, there is this idea today that I need a professional. Would you have considered the Apostle Peter as a fisherman, prior fisherman, and some of the other men as professionals? Though they were there ministering to other people, they were helping. They were doing the world, it says, was turned upside down. Do you think there was a lot less hurts back then than there is now? What about with Nero and burning Christians alive and impaling their bodies on stakes uh, and then dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire? Uh, Do you think there were any less hurts than what we may have today? No, maybe a little bit different, culturally speaking, but there were still some really hard times. When the Bible says all things that pertain to life and godliness, you know what, it's incumbent upon us as believers to fill our minds with God's word. So when a friend or family or someone comes up to us, how do I deal with this? We begin to say, here's what God thinks about it. And you can come along in a loving, caring, compassionate way and walk with them through God's word to find the healing that God wants to give. But we must be word-filled teachers. So as we come to the time of invitation this evening, with heads bowed and eyes closed, we won't have any piano play this evening, just a time of quietness between you and the Lord. But I would admonish you, you know, in in my life, and it's again an admonishment to me, uh, to be even more diligent in penetrating and filling my life with this precious book. Because we have a world that is hostile, but they're looking for hope. And those of us as believers know that Jesus is the truth.